This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear Dr. Ransom Poitras as he considers Christian views on human origins. Dr. Poitras is Assistant Professor of Biology at Houghton College in New York. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2021 General Assembly. Let's listen as Dr. Poitras considers who believes what, Christian views on evolution and human origins. Most of you probably don't know me, uh, but my last name might ring a few bells. Uh, So it it is is in fact the case. So uh, many of you probably know uh, Vern Poitras, uh, in terms of, he's been spe- teaching at Westminster Seminary for over 40 years now as a New Testament professor, uh, and his book, Redeeming Science, particularly touches on this issue. It's my father, uh, so that's the, the connection there. Uh, there aren't just, there aren't the too many Poitruses floating around in the world, uh, so I thought I would get that out of the way. But yeah, so I'm, I'm interested in this, this issue um, <clears throat> in no small part because of, of my father's work in, in this as well. And... Uh, so I'm going to try and do a couple of different things today. So if, if you know anything about the creation of evolution discussion, uh, it's pretty confusing. There's just so many voices speaking into the milieu, lots of name calling, uh, I would say, as well. Uh, and so it's hard to kind of narrow down and say, like, well, what are, what are the things that we're actually talking about, that we actually are disagreeing on? Uh, who are the people who are involved in this? Who are the, the big names and what are they representing? Um, and so part of what do they actually believe? And what are some of the, the hard questions for those various positions? And so what I'm going to attempt to do is to present some of the major, the major positions. And we're going to go through kind of a, um, uh, the same cycle for each of the major positions. We're going to look at uh, what, are, what are the kind of the, the major things they believe? Who are the people? And this is going to be really helpful, I think, um, because when you go to pick up a book or you see a new book that's been published, you go, well, what, what is this book actually saying? Or, or how do I know what they're going to say? Is this trustworthy or not? And uh, by the end of this, hopefully, you can go to a book. You can just look at the blurbs, and you can know right away, all right, I know what this book is going to be arguing for um, based on some of what I'm going to present to you. So. Um, a lot of this comes back to there's a huge number of positions uh, and interpretations of Genesis 1 through 2. 
And I don't have the time in 50 minutes to go through all of them. Uh, but there are a large number. I've listed a few of them here. We have mature creation theory, young earth creationism, revelatory day theory, gap theory, local creation theory, intermittent day theory, and it goes, it goes on and on. So that the point of this slide is, is not to try and distinguish all of them, but just to say there's a lot of stuff out there. And there have been entire books written on this stuff. So uh, what, what am I attempting to do in 50 minutes? Uh, so I'm, I'm going to distill things down to what I would say these large, large kind of category groups of uh, young earth creationism, old earth creationism, and uh, theistic evolution, which is the, the term that has been most commonly used, although in the last two or three years, uh, many of the proponents of this position have moved away from that term and have now uh, adopting something called evolutionary creationism. So those two terms are, are somewhat interchangeable. And I'll talk about the views, the people, and the questions. I want to also caveat the entire talk by saying, because I'm trying to draw fairly large-scale umbrellas for these three positions, uh, you, you yourself may self-identify with one of those labels, but not necessarily agree with how I'm presenting it, um, which I, that's just kind of the limitations that I'm facing of, of trying to boil everybody down into three groups. And so I fully recognize that there are a lot of kind of intricacies and, and, and little, little things one way or the other on some of these positions. And so I'm, what I'm trying to do is just encapsulate what would be the kind of the the large-scale majority view for some of these kinds of things. So I'm not going to get into a lot of the nitty-gritty. I'm just trying to catch as much as I can. So one of the first things that's really important to do with something like this would be to define what we mean by evolution. Uh, so there are some definitions of it that are fairly non-controversial. Uh, so we can say change over time. We use this in kind of our common parlance, right? We talk about like the evolution of the car or the evolution of technology. Well, all we really mean is change. Um, and we can see that that happens. We could talk about, Wikipedia defines it, and change inheritable characteristics of biological populations over successive generations. Again, fairly non-controversial. Um, we change. Like, uh, you know, my, my kid looks similar to me, but different from me. And so there's, there's change over generations. Uh, even this one from dictionary.com, change in gene pool of a population from generation to generation by such processes as mutation, natural selection, and genetic drift. Genes, you know, I won't get into the, all the nitty gritty on DNA and stuff, but we know mutations happen. We know that you know, you know, your genes change. And again, no one really disagrees with that. This is where it gets a bit trickier, the Merriam-Webster de definition here. And I'm going to box this term here that says, this is change in population of organisms leading to the appearance of new forms. Uh, and so this definition of evolution, I think, is where we start to people people start we start to see some more controversy. So if you ever have to engage with someone on this, it will be really important to ask them first: Can you please define evolution? <laughs> um, because I found that if you don't start that way, there's I was going to say 80 percent, but I just made that number up. If you don't start that way there's a pretty high probability that you're just going to end up talking past each other because you're using that word in different ways. Um, OK, so let me dive right in here. So young earth creationism, generally speaking, uh, the idea is right. the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God. The world was created roughly 10,000 years ago. 
There was no death before the fall. Most of the major geologic features and structures and changes that we have seen are attributed to the flood uh, or some kind of appearance of age. Uh, and the, most of these, the official position is that the age of the Earth and kind of the age of creation, uh, although we can disagree on it, is not a salvific issue. Right? So uh, your salvation is not at risk if you, if you don't, don't agree with this position. Um, so some of the most famous people when it comes to this position would be Ken Ham, uh, who is probably the most publicly well-known. He's the CEO and founder of Answers in Genesis. And in 2014, he had a uh, publicly televised debate with uh, Bill Nye that's on YouTube. Uh, so you can, you can go and find that on YouTube if you want, uh, just by searching for it. It's not terribly difficult to find. Henry Morris is uh, also well-known in this particular group, the founder of the Institution for Creation Research. And there's a couple of other individuals, individuals Danny Faulkner, Terry Mortensen, Andrew Snelling, who, who write quite a bit uh, for this position. And so the, there are the major organizations that represent young earth creationism would be something like uh, Creation Ministries International. I mentioned Institute, Institute for Creation Research, Creation Research Society, Answers in Genesis being the kind of the major apologetic arm of uh, young earth creationism. And then you have the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter that are both in Kentucky uh, that are uh, uh, espousing uh, young earth creationism as well, very specifically. Uh, so those are kinds of like the, the major people and organizations. So if you go to pick up something and it's by, you know, uh, Institution for Creation Research Press or something like that. So you know, right, all right, this is going to be a young earth creationist book. Right? Um, or if you read something by Ken Ham or Terry Mortensen or you see their name on something, you know, okay, this is, this is the position that they're probably bringing. <clears throat> so there are um, some, some of the more, some of the questions for young earth creationism. And uh, I'm going to go through these kinds of things with all the different positions. And I'm not... Uh, I would say these are difficult questions. I wouldn't say that these questions have no answers. So you'll, you'll find that for all, the, for all the groups that I do this with, those groups have responses. But I would just say uh, these are some of the, the more challenging questions that they have to wrestle with. Uh, so for, for young earth creationism, one of the major questions is, why does the earth look really old? Um, everything about the world looks old. Um, so from things like ice cores and tree rings and radioactive decay, uh, a, a lot of it seems to indicate that the world is older than 10,000 years. And so one of the questions that you, the young earth creationists are constantly dealing with is trying to explain why these things look old um, when it's in fact very young. So uh, an example of this would be that uh, we see stars in the sky that are millions of light years away. Right? And so that, that means that the, the light that we're seeing actually, if we're being consistent with light, the speed of light, took millions of years to get here. Uh, and so obviously that doesn't work if, if things are only 10,000 years old. So like I said, there, there are some answers to these kinds of questions, one of them being that um, the world was just created to look old, so the mature creation kind of thing. Um, so uh, the other thing that we have to wrestle with is that for a lot of this to work, many of the measured constants of science that we, we know and use for experimenting would probably have to have been different uh, in the past for some of those things. So 
you know, the strong and weak nuclear magnetic forces or the rate of radioactive decay or some of these things probably would have had to have been different. That's not to say that they couldn't have been, but that seems it's inconsistent at least with what we observe today. Um, another question for young Earth creationists is, why must we interpret Genesis 1 through 2 as a literal 24-hour days? Uh, is this the, really the only reasonable interpretation, or is it an overreading? And again, there's all kinds of books and blogs and things that will deal with that. Uh, and can we still view the Bible as inerrant with some of these other views of uh, creation? And then um, when we look at the fossil layer, why are species unmixed in fossil layers in a progressively more complex way? Um, and so that can, be, that can be a challenging kind of question. <clears throat> so those are some of the things that we look at with young earth creationism. So buzzing right along. Uh, old earth creationism, again, uh, majority view of this is the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God. Nature and the Bible speak in perfect harmony although we as individuals may fail in interpreting either one of them. God transcendently created the universe billions of years ago. <clears throat> Mass speciation events, so that means when animals kind of diversify, were instances of divine intervention. Uh, old Earth creationism rejects the concept of uh, common descent, this idea that we're descended from some sort of common ancestor. Uh, they typically refrain from claiming to hold the only valid understanding of Genesis. And similar to young earth creationists, they'd say the age of creation is not a salvation issue. Uh, so recognizing that there's going to be differences of opinion. There's probably differences of opinion in this room. So uh, some of the major individuals for this would be Hugh Ross, uh, Fazel Rana, and Kenneth Samples. So Hugh Ross just recently wrote uh, Creator in the Cosmos. He's updated this now. I think this is his third or fourth edition uh, to, to look at some of, the, some of this evidence. And uh, so he primarily works with reasons to believe, uh, which is the, the major, I would say, old earth creationist organization. Looking up particularly, Hugh Ross's background is in physics and astronomy and, and some of those kinds of things. But there's also old earth ministries, solid rock lectures, and the stones cry out, which would be... Uh, promoting or uh, propounding old earth creationist uh, viewpoints. <clears throat> All right, so some of the questions for old earth creationists would be the idea of bad design. So when we look at organisms that seem to, they seem to just not be designed really well. So there's a, a thumb on pandas that, that seems to be inefficient or doesn't work really well. Why would God create something that doesn't work with the highest degree of efficiency? And there are, there are lots of different answers to that kind of thing. Uh, another significant question for them would be, what was, if the world really is this old, uh, what was life like pre-fall, that is pre-Adamic fall? Um, was there death? Was there not? That's another significant thing. Can we talk about animal death pre-fall? How, how do we talk about death uh, before Adam and Eve uh, sinned? And then there's some questions about the order of the days of creation in Genesis. So fruiting plants appear before sea animals, which doesn't seem to, to fit some of what we know or what things look like in the fossil record. There are um, some different animals. So very different animals have some of the same errors in genes that don't function. So why is that? Um, so again, not to say that there aren't not, aren't explanations for these kinds of things that people put forward, 
But these are just some of the kinds of difficult questions that these groups have to wrestle with. Uh, so I have a short excursus here because this category, I didn't mention it up front, doesn't really fit with any of the other three. And the idea, uh, intelligent design. How many, how many of you have heard of intelligent design? Okay, yeah, all right. Right, so uh, intelligent design encompasses uh, both young earth and old earth creationism. You'll find people from both groups that fall under this. The, the idea of intelligent design is that it's a sci scientific hypothesis that um, when intelligence goes into making something, that is detectable. Like we can, we can figure out if something has uh, required intelligence. And so that is, it is distinguishable from lack of design and that marks of design are present in nature. Uh, so the intelligence design community is very, very specific about trying to not be religious. They want this to be a, uh, a scientific uh, and fit in with the scientific community. And so most of the time, they're really trying to avoid that. Um, there's a lot of misinformation around it. If you read the Wikipedia article, for example, on intelligent design, it will tell you that it's religious. Uh, the Wikipedia article on intelligent design is one of the most highly controlled articles on Wikipedia um, by the, the editors. Uh, they won't allow changes to it. Um, Kitz Miller versus Dover in 2005 is, is a frequently referenced uh, judge decision where a school board was trying to get intelligent design taught in schools, and the judge ruled that it was religious. Uh, so there's, all, there's a whole book published on that particular decision and some of the issues with that. Uh, like I said, it encompasses both young earth and old earth creationism, but typically not theistic evolution. And so the, the intelligent design is formulated as something called inference to the best explanation. So to give you a sense of what that is, I don't know how many of you in the back probably can't see this, but we've got here, there's a picture of a house and uh, there's a broken pane of glass with a soccer ball and a kid looking pretty guilty. So <laughs> what happened here, right? So you look at that and you go, well, the kid probably kicked the ball and broke the window, right? You've just done inference to the best explanation, right? You, you haven't run an experiment. Right? We think about science as being this very hard-nosed, like I'm gonna run an experiment, I'm gonna run it again, I'm gonna run it again to make sure that it, uh, but a lot of science involves something like this. In fact, some of the uh, the moons of Uranus were, were found based on this kind of thing where you look at a situation and you go, well, there are other explanations for that broken window. It could be that the kid was playing soccer and came over and just happened to find it. But this one seems to be the best, given what I, given what I know here, um, given what I know about kids and soccer balls and windows. right? Uh, and so in, intelligent design is kind of formulated along the same lines as that. This idea that very complex specified information, like language, language is a very complex specified information, uh, has only ever been created by intelligent beings. Then when we go to look at something like DNA, DNA is, is a language. Uh, uh, and it's one of the most complicated, beautiful languages that you'll ever learn and have to study it, or dread studying, as the case may be. So therefore, intelligence was most likely involved in the development of DNA. And this is a more explanatory inference based on the evidence than any other theory. Because intelligence is the only known cause that is currently in existence that is known to produce complex specified information. 
Uh, and so that's kind of the formulation of, of intelligent design. And there's all kind. It, it's a bit messy because I'm, I'm going to skip over this a little bit. But this idea of best explanation. Well, who gets to define what's best? Uh, so that, that's where we end up in a, quite a bit of fighting over that. So there's a lot of people involved in this. Uh, some of these names might be familiar. They've made the rounds. Uh, Philip Johnson was responsible with Darwin on trial uh, for kind of kicking things off 20 or 30 years ago. William Densky, Stephen Meyer is probably the most well-known name in the ID uh, intelligent design community. Just this past April, he published uh, The Return of the God Hypothesis. Uh, and he's written a couple of New York... Uh, uh, New York Times bestsellers, including Signature in the Cell and Darwin's Doubt. And so this is kind of the third book there. Mike Behe uh, is a molecular biochemist who uh, back in 96, I think, wrote Darwin's Black Box and uh, has written a couple of other things, including most recently, Darwin Devolves. But there's other people like um, John West, Doug Axe, J.P. Moreland, uh, Michael Denton, Jonathan Wells, Jay Richards, uh, Jack Collins, who's an OT professor at Covenant Seminary, uh, William Lane Craig, Ann Gager, Gunter Beckley, and John Lennox, who's one of the few people to actually be able to debate Richard Dawkins. Uh, Richard Dawkins doesn't accept many debate invitations for a lot of reasons. Uh, but Lennox got to him, and uh, so you can find those debates on, on YouTube. Really well-spoken guy. He's written a couple books on this. Um, so the Discovery Institute would be the major organization that represents uh, intelligent design. And they have a blog, Evolution News and Views, and their Center for Science and Culture. Um, so that's ID. So some of the questions, particularly for ID, is uh, you'll hear a lot this idea of, well, isn't this an argument from ignorance? It's essentially an argument like, well, we just don't know. And so we're kind of filling in. Uh, kind of a God of the gaps kind of thing. We're, we're just plugging in intelligence in God to fill in for our lack of scientific knowledge. And once our scientific knowledge grows, won't we fill these holes in? And what if there are counterexamples that do get found? <clears throat> and isn't it kind of risky uh, to avoid naming who we think the designer is? And so you run into this, uh, this fairly philosophical distinction of, can we really separate science and theology? <clears throat> is, that, is that something that we can and should do? Uh, and are, is, that, is that possible? Or is that tension just too much and it's not going to work? Are we, we're not presenting the most holistic and comprehensive and strongest argument we can when we're trying to cut God out of it and not name him. Um, so some things there. I want to I spend a bit of time on theistic evolution and evolutionary creationism uh, because, well... For a, for a lot of different reasons. So when uh, the typical views here is they believe the Bible is the inspired and authoritative word of God. However, they typically do not use the word inerrant. Uh, you don't see those, those, those statements of inerrancy, and you'll hear phrases of things like inspired error and stuff like that. Um, they believe that the diversity and interrelation of all life on Earth are best explained by the God-ordained process of evolution with common descent. Thus, evolution is not an opposition to God, but a means by which God providentially achieves his purposes. Therefore, we reject ideologies that claim that evolution is a purposeless process or that evolution replaces God. And I've, I've pulled this from the What We Believe 
um, section of one of the most prominent theistic evolution sites. So they believe that God created humans in biological continuity with all life on earth, but also as spiritual beings. God established a unique relationship with humanity by endowing us with his image and calling us to an elevated position within the created order. Uh, and so there are some fairly significant people involved in this. Um, BioLogos is the major organization for evolutionary creationism. Uh, very well funded. Um, and so Deborah Harsima is the current president of BioLogos, but it was founded by Francis Collins, uh, who for a while was the director of the NIH, which is like a major, major, the National Institutes of Health, one of the largest uh, science organizations in the United States. He was responsible for overseeing the Human Genome Project that was completed in 2002. Very, very public figure. Uh, wrote, wrote this book called The Language of God, which is his, uh, his presentation of basically his belief in theistic evolutionary, evolutionary creationism. Um, so John Walton also tends to, uh, he's a professor at Wheaton, would fall into this category, I would say. Uh, Dennis Venema, who wrote a book a couple years ago, Adam and the Genome, uh, who is a professor up in Canada. Dennis Lamoureux, Josh Swamidas, who recently published this book called The Genealogical Adam and Eve. Uh, and so he's been on YouTube debating a couple of, uh, he, there's a, one just a couple weeks ago where he does a debate with Gunter Beckley uh, from Intelligent Design. But he's a professor at, I want to say, University of Washington in St. Louis. I might be wrong on that. Daryl Falk, Dennis Alexander, Peter Enns, uh, Tremper Longman III, uh, who's a professor at Westmont, Kenneth Miller, uh, Elaine Howard Eklund. Uh, and so, as I said, BioLogos is the major figurehead for this. Um, and they get a lot of money from the Templeton Foundation, uh, which is not specifically, Templeton Foundation is a Christian organization uh, yeah, that, that distributes money to a wide variety of different things, but uh, one of them being, being BioLogos. And the American Scientific Affiliation, I would say, would probably fall under uh, this category as well as supporting this kind of view. But the statements that I pulled on the previous slide are from BioLogos's website. And so if you do any kind of searching on the internet, uh, their presence is, is pretty huge. And so you'll find, you'll find stuff from them. All right, so questions for them. All right, so... Uh, in, in taking this approach to the science, one of the questions is, well, are you failing to deal with underlying metaphysical commitments? So what do I mean by that? For example, um, many scientists, practicing scientists in the world today are atheists or agnostics, and so isn't there a bit of a conflict of interest for them uh, try, trying to justify their atheism uh, by, by pushing or, or looking for support for evolution? And so can we, can we really just take everything that they say at face value, essentially, right? In the same way that, that you and I come to things with you know, our Christian perspectives, uh, science is not neutral. Uh, these people who are doing, scientists, doing science come with their preconceived beliefs, and it affects the kind of questions that they ask and the kind of results that they look for and the way they interpret things. And so are we too quick, uh, basically, to ignore that? So why are we so quick? Why are they so quick to dismiss the possibility of design? So, um, and it's been a little bit embarrassing. So I mentioned Dennis Venema. He wrote a book two or three years ago, Adam and the Genome, in which he says that there is no way, uh, I'm, I'm, mis I'm not quoting him, I'm paraphrasing, I, I 
but there's basically no way that the human population was ever smaller than a group of like uh, tens of thousands of people. So he published this in this book, uh, and half of the book is written by him, half of the book is written by Scott McKnight, and uh, there is a, I won't bore you with the details, but there is a very, very long string of discussion on one of the Biologos forums where it was between him and a couple of other geneticists, but he basically had to back off that statement and say, well, it's, it's possible that we, we did come, given what our understanding of genetics, it's possible that we could have come from a founding couple, uh, you know, thousands, thousands, I think he puts the figure at like 200,000 years ago or something like that. And so they kind of took him to task for putting this in print like that's not possible. Uh, and so we've, you've got these kinds of recantations on human origins. Um, and so I would say one of the big questions for them has to do with can you find or does there exist experimental evidence for the creation of new genetic information? And so what do I mean by that? So um, you look at different dog breeds, for example. I've got this picture over here on the right. of Dogs look really different. Uh, and so a lot of times people pointed at dogs and said, well, look at, look at what we can do with you know, mutations and breeding and stuff over a very short period of time. Uh, but it's actually a really great example of the opposite because we have accelerated uh, through intelligence and controlling what we're doing with dogs, a process that still creates dogs. Uh, and we've never made anything other than dogs. And uh, a lot of those changes that we're looking at are, are not actually, you really have to dig down into what's actually happening in the genes. But most of the time, we're, we're turning genes off, or we're just increasing the rate at which an existing gene is, is made or copied. Uh, and so we're not making new genes. And for this kind of thing to be true, you have to have mechanisms for making new genes that you can show experimentally. Uh, so I have a quote here from a peer-reviewed article in 2013, but it's, I think it still holds true. It says, uh, once you have identified an enzyme, which is a, just a small kind of protein molecule in your body that does some work, uh, and it has some kind of weak promiscuous activity for a reaction, it's fairly clear that if you have mutations at random, you can select and improve this activity by several orders of magnitude. Here's the key. What we lack is a hypothesis for the earlier stages where you don't have this spectrum of activities, active sites and folds in the structure from which selection can identify starting points. Evolution has this catch-22. Nothing evolves unless it already exists. And so uh, there's a guy, I think it's at Michigan State, Richard Lenski, who's been doing this thing called the LTEE, so the Long-Term Evolutionary Experiment. And so he has kept track of 70,000 generations of E. coli. So he, he sets these E. coli, he puts them, it's a little bacteria, puts them in this broth, he allows them to divide, and he saves them. And he puts the new one in a little broth, allows them to divide, and he saves them. And he goes on, he's done this 70,000 generations. Um, and so to give you a rough, E. coli can divide it like once every 20 or 30 minutes or something like that, right? So 70,000 generations in human years, if humans were to go through 70,000 generations, that's about one and a half million years, okay? So he's been doing this for 70,000 generations in E. coli. What has he got? Nothing, yeah. No new innovation. There were a couple of things that were, he got really excited about. So there was something about the processing citrate, but it turns out that they already had this ability and it was just turned off. 
and so they just turned on something that already existed. They've changed some gene expressions, but there's no new genetic information in the way that we would kind of define it after 70,000 generations. So this is a pretty significant question for them, I think. Um, I won't go into all the details, but there's a rise. This is, again, from the uh, Royal Society. I had a, a meeting in 2017. Rising number of publications argue for a major revision or even a replacement of the standard theory of evolution, indicating that this cannot be dismissed as a minority view, but rather as a widespread feeling among scientists and philosophers alike. Uh, and so it goes, it goes on here. And the, the individual who wrote this is, is an atheist and an evolutionist, and is not, not, he actually doesn't end up saying we should get rid of evolution. He thinks it needs to combine more things to deal with this problem, which is essentially... Uh, the real issue is that genetic evolution alone, and so he suggests we need more than just genetic evolution, but genetic evolution alone has been found insufficient for an adequate causal explanation of all forms of phenotypic complexity. Um, so obviously this was very controversial when he said this and upset a lot of people. Um, but there's this idea that there are, there, are some, there are some issues and some questions here that need to be dealt with. So I've dealt with some of the science questions for theistic evolution. I want to deal with some of the theological questions as well that I think they have to deal with, which is, uh, were humans the intended outcome of the creation process by God? Is a question for these people. And if so, if God, when he started this, said humans are the target, is it really random? Is it really random evolution anymore? And so another way of asking that question is, can God guide an unguided process? Right. Um, so Deborah Harsma, who is the president of BioLogos, uh, said this, God planned, created, governs, and continually sustains the process of evolution. God has chosen to use random processes as part of his design, but that does not require God to explicitly determine the outcome of every random event. Um, which, for me, raises a lot of questions. <laughs> it's uh, a, lot, a lot of questions. And so... One of, the, one of the follow-up questions for this would be, well, is the way atheists uh, or um, secular humanists or something like that, is the way they use the word evolution different from the way evolutionary creationists use it? Because they would typically, I, would, I, I believe, say that randomness is a significant part of this. So if it is, in fact, different from the way atheists use, use it, so if... Theistic evolutionists say evolution and atheists say evolution, but the two are meaning something different. Shouldn't they use a different word? Because uh, this, is, this is ending up being kind of confusing, and you run into these kinds of problems where you're saying, well, we're, we're guiding a random process, which is it really random anymore uh, if it's guided. Um, so there's that. The other thing that you, you run into with um, evolutionary creationists is that a lot of, a lot of them will say that God's design is very clear and apparent in cosmology and physics. So things like uh, the creation of, uh, creation of the world, the setting, the fine-tuning of some of the, uh, uh, the scientific constants, like the strong and, strong and weak magnetic, magnetic forces, gravitational, those, those kinds of things. So God's design is very clear and apparent there, but all of a sudden when you get to biology, it's not apparent anymore. Right, and so you kind of well, why is God so clear here, and then all of a sudden changes his mind, using that metaphorically because we know God doesn't change his mind, but changes tactic, I guess. Uh, and so this seems to conflict with Romans one, right? This idea that the evidence is clear, and so if the evidence is clear per Romans one, 
how can we say that God has arranged the world in a way that he's undetectable? Again, they have some explanations for this by saying that, well, isn't God more magnificent by basically making a process that he's not detectable? So uh, there's, there's some of those things, right? So Romans, Romans 1 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, right? Um, so if he's so clear, you know, where, where can we find him in biology? Uh, and so another question you could ask them would be, well, why do you believe in God if your scientific picture looks basically the same as that of an atheistic scientist? Right? What's, what's the difference when it comes to you know, um, uh, biology and the creation of the world? Like, where, how are you actually any different than an atheist? And if you're not, then where is all this coming from? So you run into problems of uh, difficulties of trying to use biology apologetically. Um, under, un, I, I think it's more, it's more challenging under this position. Uh, and the whole process depends on death, right? Uh, evolution re- requires lots and lots of death and change. And that, that seems, I, I don't, I don't want to put myself in the place of God, and I've got to be very careful not to do that. Um, but given what we understand of the Bible, that, that doesn't always seem like that's how he works. seems counter to his design. The other major, major question for, uh, I would say, the theistic evolution community is that of original sin, right? Uh, you have, if, you, if you adopt this idea that we were never, never an original founding couple, but we always came from a large group of people, uh, how do you deal with original sin? It has some really severe, rippling theological effects. Um, and so a lot, of what, a lot of what they end up saying, seeing is that, well, all people are sinners, but an answer to why all people are sinners isn't required to see the need for salvation. So it feels kind of like it's kicking the can down the road uh, a little bit. And so just kind of, well, it, we, we, just, we know we need Christ, um, even though we don't fully understand how we get the, the sin nature. But the problem is that there are a lot of passages, particularly in the New Testament, that seem to really argue from this perspective that Adam and Eve were real people and that they were the founding couple and we all came from them. Um, so I've listed a few here, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, Acts 16, uh, 1 Timothy 2. But here's a quote from Acts 17, just to give an example of one of them. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Um, but the Romans 5 one is, is huge, I think, too. Many of you are probably familiar with that, right? The, as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, right? And then you get this, this beautiful symmetry of like, well, we're, we're, we're saved by one man as well. Uh, and so it really seems to argue from that. So Scott McKnight, in his, I, I mentioned him earlier, he wrote the second half of this book with Dennis Venema, Venema, and part of what he's trying to do is basically say, well, given, given this fact that we came from a population, how do we reinterpret the New Testament? Uh, maybe, maybe reinterpret is the wrong word, but how, how can we deal with this? And so one of the things he says here is that humans somehow inherit something from Adam. And he goes into a lot of other things, but I... I I find that difficult. Like this is such a central part of of why we need you know, the atonement, and why we need Christ. That I'm I'm hesitant to move move over to another view without getting something a little bit more clear than that. Um, and so, under this view, right, the the genealogical view that some people use, um, that 
all humans are eventually descended from Adam. So there's this kind of this medium, medium position uh, that says, like, well, we were a group, but eventually everybody, you know, everybody got related to Adam. But under that position, it still means that you still you had some early humans who were not descended from Adam, and therefore wouldn't have inherited sin the way that's described in Romans 5. So you run into some problems there. Um, I want to kind of close out by pointing, making you aware of a couple of, these are not Christian organizations, but there are, there's a, a growing sentiment within the secular world that they need to kind of reach out to Christian organizations. Uh, so the AAAS, which is a major science organization in the United States, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, is running a program called DOSER, uh, which stands for the Dialogue on Science, Ethics, and Religion. And so it's being headed up by Jennifer Wiseman, who's associated with BioLogos. Uh, and they even have a website, scienceforseminaries.org. And so they're, they're being very proactive of, about trying to get into seminaries because they know right, that these are the people who are going to go to their congregations and preach. And so if they can, if they can get them on their side, um, they can get something out of it. And they can, they can kind of change the perspective within the church, right? So top-down kind of thing. Um, so it's not, I would argue, based on what I've read of it, that it's not much of a dialogue. Uh, it's, it's, it's a bit more one-sided, I would say, and so to kind of be on the lookout for this kind of thing. Uh, again, it's affiliated with Biologos. The idea is you can be a Christian and still believe in evolution is kind of, is kind of where they're, they're coming. There's some other major uh, organizations that are, are secular. The NSF, the National Science Foundation I mentioned, Francis Collins and the NIH. Um, National Center for Science Education, National Academy of Sciences. Uh, most of these things tend to leave religion alone as long as you accept evolution. They don't care what you believe as long as you accept evolution. So this is a, uh, this is a statement from the uh, National Science Center for Science Education, which prints a lot of prints and produces a lot of the material that go into schools. So this is their statement. Um, there is no scientific debate about the fundamentals of evolution. Life evolves, species descend with modifications from other species. However, fewer than 50% of American adults know that humans developed from earlier species. The fact of evolution is seen by some as a threat to personal worldviews. Uh, added to this social controversy is a general lack of understanding about what evolution is and how it works. Together, these factors can make it challenging for teachers to present the science honestly, accurately, and completely. Uh, the, the academy is committed to helping teachers gain the confidence and support they need to teach evolution effectively. Um, so again, you can see these very strong words that they're using, and they're not really talking about their own worldview perspective that they're bringing to this. Um, so just some things to, to be on the lookout for. Uh, some quick concluding advice. I would say if this is something you do want to get into, um, I would read multiple perspectives. Uh, this is one of those areas where it's very, very easy to get into an echo chamber, where you come, with, you come at something with your own perspective and you will find tons and tons of stuff to reaffirm that. And it's very easy to do that. One of the best uh, things to do this, uh, there's a book called uh, Four Views on Creation, Evolution, Intelligent Design that is an actual dialogue between some of the top figures on this particular thing with respect to... Um, yeah, so Deb Harsma writes for Theistic Evolution, President of Biologos. Stephen Meyer writes for Intelligent Design. 
Ken Ham writes for Young Earth Creationism, and Hugh Ross writes for Old Earth Creationism. So these are the top figures for these particular things, and you can actually see them dialoguing together. Right? Um, if you're only reading one of these, one of these particular views, I mean, I'm tempted to do this myself, right? If you're only reading one of these particular things, they tend, it's very easy to misrepresent one of the other positions. Uh, and so I like this book because you know that you're, you're getting, it's, it's a fairly small volume. The idea is, is to, to uh, hit the, your lay reader. Um, read book critiques. So uh, I'm really appreciative of what Mike Behe has done. So in writing Darwin Devolves, he actually has an entire website, darwindevolves.com slash criticism, where he posts all of the bad reviews of his books uh, and his responses to them. Right? So if you're just reading the reviews, then uh, you're like, well, are they really representing him well? And so his, his interaction with those helps you to see, like, all right, who's, who's being fair in their representation? Um, then recognize science is not objective. We're all metaphysically invested. Um, atheist scientists, those kinds of things. I mentioned this earlier, but our observations are affected by our worldview, uh, and then our interpretation of experiments, scientists' interpretation of experiments is affected by what they bring to the table. And uh, demonstrate humility. The more and more I read about this stuff, the more and more I realize how much I don't know. Uh, and there's, there's just this stuff we don't know. And you know, we can talk about things like the mystery of the Trinity and, and how amazing that is. It's okay to not know everything. Uh, and we, that doesn't stop us from continuing to look for these things and try and figure them out. But um, there are very smart people out there who are, who are Christians. I don't want to besmirch any of that. And they disagree over the science. And so this is probably going to be something we'll disagree about for a while. God just didn't tell us all the details about this and about other things. Um, uh, so if you're, if you're interested in more resources, there's actually, uh, the PCA did, uh, in 1999, there was a creation study committee uh, that published a 90-page report or something like that. And so I'm just going to close with this, and I might be able to take like one or two questions. Uh, and so this, it basically recognizes that within the PCA, there's, there's a, quite a, probably quite a diversity of, uh, of views on this. Uh, it says, so this is what they affirm. That they affirm the, the scriptures, and hence Genesis 1 through 3, are the inerrant word of God, that they are history, not myth. History is the proper word to describe Genesis 1 through 3. That's the proper category for describing these chapters. And furthermore, that the history is true. In these chapters, we find the record of God's creation of the heavens and the earth ex nihilo, out of nothing, of the special creation of Adam and Eve as actual human beings, the parents of all humanity. Hence, they are not the products of evolution from lower forms of life. We further find the account of an historical fall that brought all humanity into a state of sin and misery and of God's sure promise of a redeemer. We recognize that a naturalistic worldview and true Christian faith are impossible to reconcile and gladly take our stand with biblical supernaturalism. Uh, and then this is the rec closing recommendation. that Since historically in Reformed theology there has been a diversity of views of the creation days among highly re respected theologians, and since the PCA has, from its inception, allowed a diversity, that the Assembly affirm that such diversity as covered in this report is acceptable as long as the full historicity of the creation account is accepted. Uh, and so, I mean, that's, you know, 22 years ago. Uh, and the, the issues are still as present today as they were uh, in some respects. But um, I think we can, oh, we can still live together in harmony. Blessings on you all.
You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.